Hello, love. Hi. <laughs> Since we last met, we've got a new prime minister. Yeah. Uh, that escalated very quickly. That was pretty unbelievable. And do you know, I think this word is an overstatement, but the word that I mostly am hearing from politicians, staffers and press gallery journalists is that they feel traumatised by the experience. Yeah, do you know what? I think um, usually leadership spills kind of build up and build up and build up so you know pretty much that it's imminent and then it's over quickly usually. But what happened uh, last week was that um, it it was sudden and it was then incredibly prolonged. And it was also prolonged at a high level of tension yeah. for a number of days, whereas say with the Tony Abbott one, um, they had that meeting early in the year where he was empty chaired yeah. and then by the time it actually came to the I end of the year. empty chair as a verb. <laughs> the meeting was empty chaired by the chairman. <laughs> by the time we got to the time when he was finally rolled, it was yeah. almost like a feeling of relief and I don't mean relief by Tony Abbott being rolled. I mean a relief as in like when it rains, when you've had the yeah. air of expectation where yeah. you feel like, oh, I knew that was coming. Yeah. Here it is. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, whereas this one was like, geez, what's going to happen? Which way is it going to go? It felt really um, unstable. The thing, I don't know. I think I wasn't in the building and that was a really different experience. You know, watching this happen from outside Parliament House, I found it a really different experience and I think it was quite chastening to me to think that this is what that joint looks like from outside when this is going on. Like I felt much more like um, – oh, there's the interruption. Clang. <laughs> um, I felt much more like a, a spectator, I suppose, um, and maybe because this seemed to be – a challenge that was about less than um, some of its predecessors. Do you know the thing that seems more mad? The thing that's so weird too is that in say my you know twenty five year career in journalism, even say in opposition when there was a change of leader, yeah. that was like a big story and yeah. very unusual, and you, you would hate to be on holidays when that happened. That now is really common. If you if you've yeah. been in the gallery for the past ten years, it's like that's you've a pretty commonplace yeah. yarn. Everybody moves to their assigned positions. Yeah, you know the that's paperwork funny. for getting the approvals to film in the corridor. You know, so you can oh. get that moving shot of the pot plant not doing anything while they. Quite incredible. Hey, um, not to blow smoke up your ass, but oh. bend over. <laughs> uh, um, I thought that your analysis and, in particular, a couple of columns that you wrote were the best pieces of analysis I read about the whole thing. Oh, I'd love. There's a square inch of ass that remains unkissed right here if you'd like to. Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't want to distract attention from the fact that, you know, you were able to share some of the culinary adventures, for example. Of oh, the, stop it. Yeah. I mean, that was, you know, obviously, you know, your main contribution. But the insights that you were able to bring because of you writing the book about Turnbull and just, I don't know, the way you sort of weaved together how – it was going to likely deliver a Labor government and then you wrote a good, really great piece about Julie Bishop as well. I thought you were – I was like reading them and just going, this chick is so smart, particularly because the first one you were riding on a plane next to me. I know, that's right, yeah. And, she, and you, like you – it's always that thing when you see someone's draft and you sort of showed me the first two pars and went, what do you think of this? And I thought, yeah, meh. And <laughs> you then, totally met me. And then, and then I read it later and went, wow, that's amazing. <laughs> It was this sentence about how it's taken the Liberal Party 
12 years to 14 years to work Malcolm Turnbull out of their system like a splinter, but they've finally done it in a final in a, a final demented bout of <laughs> junky scratching. And I showed it to you because I thought it's pretty ugly, like it's pretty harsh imagery. Um, but I kept it because I just wanted it to be brutal. And and it did – it was interesting because I, I then sort of had a look after you posted it on Twitter and saw that you did get a little – a few people having a go at you for that yeah. use of terminology. But it did also particularly well sum up the vibe of yeah. what happened. Yeah. It, I mean, it's nearly 10 years since I wrote um, a, a quarterly essay about Turnbull who um, – we they republished it as a book before the 2016 election, but it's um it felt like just the final chapter in this extraordinary and conflict ridden relationship that mm. he's been in with the Liberal Party all this time. Like, I mean, his life is about relationships that fail spectacularly, you know, and he steams on, you know, <laughs> um, whether it's with his mother or um or with his former mentors and business partners and people like Kerry Packer, Neville Rann. Um, it's just, yeah, he seems to do conflict in a big way. But, you know, it was interesting when he came out to do the press conference when uh, so you know, perky, it was all over. Right? Yeah. yeah. He seemed like quite resigned to it, reasonably well relieved, and then, you know, is joined by his lovely family and, um, as I think Jacqueline Maley wrote, now gets to lie back into the soft pillow of extreme wealth. <laughs> Oh, I don't think it'll be that straightforward, actually. Um, I think when he lost the leadership in 2009, he plunged into a real funk. Um, yeah, but, and- that, but then you hadn't achieved the prize of being Prime Minister. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I would be, be stunned if he wasn't experiencing some very lost moments. Um, oh, I'm because, sure. Because, um, yeah, he's been Prime Minister for, what, three years? But he's also been compromised for a lot of that time and I'm sure that he would have a lot of regrets about decisions that he's taken along the way and whether he could have whether it would have been different had he taken different decisions and that's a really like regret like that is hard to I'm just speculating freely here guys I haven't (laughs) spoken to him but don't you think though that in order to it's not just unique to politicians. This is unique to just human beings and to life. In order to live with the choices we've made, you find a way to portray them in the best possible light yeah. to yourself. So you yeah. might not have many regrets at all. He might think that's what I had to do to survive as long as I did. I'm sure that that was his reasoning at the time. Um, but to to have a term as Prime Minister and not to be able to do all the things that you wanted to do and to feel that you had to compromise a lot along the way would be tricky, I think. Mm. Anyway, his son's very happy now because he gets to speak out. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's been amazing but, watching um, him on Twitter. But also watching Julie Bishop go from, you know, probably the most successful minister in the Abbott and Turnbull governments from that to backbench. Yeah, what That happened- was really like such a stunning development. And what do you think happened there? Because obviously because of that and also the statement that the member for Chisholm, Julia Banks, put out about saying she won't recontest the next election for the Liberal Party because the spill was the last straw and that she was bullied and intimidated and so forth. Um, There's been a lot of talk about women in the Liberal Party and women in politics generally. What do you think about all of that? I think about it exactly what I thought about it two weeks ago, (laughs) which is that politics is hard for women. Um, It is a different landscape that they inhabit because the decisions that they make are assessed differently from the decisions that men 
make. Um, if you look at someone like class, like Julie Bishop, absolute classic story, right? Like she's – I have no idea whether she um, would have pref- liked to have her own family or, you know, but she's a woman who spent um, – her earlier professional life working towards um, professional advancement and towards pre-selection. She got pre-selection. She um, progressed within the Liberal Party. She's done most of the jobs um, in government and opposition that are available. Um, She has devoted herself to a life in politics, flying back and forth from Perth, which is not easy. Hardly anyone's ever done that with um, a young family. So, um, And then – gets lumped in with Bill Heffernan's group of deliberately barren women. Like I always just think that's such such a lovely moment for women who have like (laughs) often sacrificed a huge amount to be in politics and then get told when they get there that they're not really properly representative of Australian society because they haven't got kids. Anyway, Julie Julie Gillard I I include in that same general space. Um, But – the most classic thing that happened to Julie Bishop is that despite being, you know, the most effective minister around the table um, and having all of this experience and um, having travelled around helping fundraise for her colleagues and being generous and supportive and <laughs> weathering the storm of leadership challenge after leadership challenge, still when their party looks around thinking, oh, um, who else could we get to lead this party? Uh, she's not really on the list. <laughs> so it's it's a classic lady moment, to be honest. It's a classic lady moment. And what I loved about that press conference that she gave, like she does such a good sledge, Julie Bishop, and people often don't realise how funny she is. And there was just such cold fire about her. When Mark Riley said, look, do you think in future that the Liberal Party will be able to bring itself to um, elect a popular female leader? And uh, she said, well, I'm sure when we find one, they will. (laughs) I just thought, oh, bang. It it was quite... Interesting observing that and then that leaked WhatsApp conversation oh, that showed just that. not being even in the. Yeah, that, in the gang. that sort of the calculation was all about would it be Dutton or Morrison? And it was sort of almost like it, it was more than a glancing mention of Julie, but she was mentioned in the context simply of, well, someone's got to let her know. Someone's that, got to let her know that none of us is voting for her. Yeah, it was sort um, of interesting that in the conversation as well that nobody said, and I mean, maybe this conversation was had elsewhere, but nobody said. Hang on, are we sure about this? Because we're trying to make ourselves as electable as possible. This is yeah. the only person, according to the poll numbers, who yeah. would make us electable. Look, I think it's it's wrong and risky to ascribe um, everything that happened to Julie Bishop or her lack of um, advancement as leader um, to her gender. It's not all about that. It's not entirely about that. I think it's a, a real influential factor, but – Mainly, I think that she didn't get um, she didn't win the ballot because if she had become the leader, I think she would have faced exactly the same problems as Malcolm Turnbull and probably worse um, because of the women thing. Like they would, the rump of the party that was um, persecuting Turnbull would have been had exactly the same feelings about her. So, but you know, sorry, didn't that is uh, that's a really significant structural 
element to what happened to her. But, you know, it's incredible, though, that you go to Morrison because in any government, there's nobody closer to the government's agenda and to the Prime Minister than the Treasurer. Yeah, but that's the greatest possible def- like demonstration that this was not a policy-based yeah. issue, was, you know. And even yeah. though, you know, there's lots of people arguing that it was all about climate, you know, it was all about the Paris targets and was all about um, the energy policy or whatever. Well, essentially, Angus Taylor, who's the new um, energy minister, has just re-announced the energy policy that um, Malcolm Turnbull reverted to at the end of this struggle. It was incredible, the straw man argument about Turnbull's dragged the party to the left. I mean, I'm yet to see somebody actually articulate clearly the policies that dragged the the party to the left. Yeah, Yeah, it's it's just been the most complicated and, and like, really genuinely nasty. I I think there's been, you know, that that sense of damage – um, that um, what's the name the member for we were talking Chisholm Julia Banks um, mm. cited that like there there were a lot of people wandering around feeling just traumatized and look there are people that have damaged themselves in a big way too like Matthias Corman who up until two weeks ago was just a remarkable performer in the Senate for the government. I mean, it's an incredibly difficult Senate and he has managed to extract from this um, unmanageable group quite um, quite a lot of deals and never really – I mean, I think this is spooky myself. Um, you, you never know exactly what deal he's cut with these backbencher, with these crossbenchers. You, you, you end up kind of finding out later down the track because David Leonhelm will say, well, actually, Matthias Corman promised to do this for me or, you know, there are these sort of long-term undertakings that aren't actually spelled out when the votes change hands, um, which I think is actually a bit anti-democratic. Like I don't like to think that there are deals that have been being made like that, but there's no doubt that Corman has been a real like results man. Um, and his decision to back Peter Dutton and remove support of the Prime Minister combined with what we now are increasingly sort of seeing of Scott Morrison's own kind of machinations behind the scene um, was a really significant decision. I think um, he made the wrong call, obviously, and will now wear the opprobrium of that and the loss of his reputation for some time. It's a really, yeah. I can't imagine as well, you know, the – how it must be with people that you work with all the time when you get into that sort of period of a leadership spill, not knowing who's your friend and who to trust. Like there was a period, I think it was on Wednesday, when uh, Turnbull did a press conference flanked by Morrison and (gasps) Corman. And about an hour later I spoke to um, somebody very connected in the Turnbull camp Mm. and said we were, were, you know, I was chewing their brain over what was going on and I said, do you trust Matthias? And this person said... Don't know. And I thought, I thought, wow, he I was know. standing next to you one yeah. hour ago. Yeah. Um, but I mean, yeah. it's it, it's the most extraordinary business politics. Oh, it really is. I remember when um, Joe Hockey and Brendan Nelson used to live together. Um, well, I mean, um, Joe Hockey bought a house in, in Canberra and he rented rooms to his colleagues and he rented the shed to um, Brendan Nelson. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Brendan lived in the garage, <laughs> even when he was defence minister. <laughs> they oh, were yeah. really cross because it wasn't very Man. secure. It actually had one of those like glass louvered windows. <sighs> it just was a garage, not even a lovely studio or anything. It's actual <laughs> garage. Um, anyway, but like they were housemates and um, when Joe voted against 
Nelson to like end his leadership, basically. It's just, it's, it's unbelievable, isn't yeah, it? It's, it's really. It's weird. It's like a normal workplace, but with all of the kind of conflict buttons just on constant dialed up to 11. And that then can be exposed and played out in the most public way imaginable. I think that the presumption is usually that they can't trust each other so they're never surprised when it turns out to be yeah right oh, God, i just can't it's, even imagine living yeah. like that but i remember um in the 2009 spill um when turnbull was defeated as leader he was so convinced that julie bishop had screwed him over like that had voted against him he was convinced that she had dudded him and so she had kept how's this she'd kept a note all of the ballot papers are numbered she kept a note of what numbers her ballot papers were and when Malcolm challenged her she went to the whips office and said I want to get my tickets so that I can show Malcolm Turnbull that I voted for him. That's oh, how, you know. Man, I love it's just like. I know. You do wonder in politics because then Turnbull at his farewell speech said something about thanking Julie Bishop who had been, you know, a yeah. friend for 20 years and stuff. You think, man, a friend is a friend in politics the same as a friend in, like imagine if I said to you, you need to produce your bit of paper to show that, you know, you blah, blah, blah. Like it's quite. Maybe like I voted against you. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. to your face. You voted for Chris Ullman to host yeah. something. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, hey, you did a thing the other day that I found when you were talking about it, I thought, oh, that sounds interesting. So I wanted to ask you a bit about it. You were chairing some panel about forgotten women of history. Oh, yeah. This is one of my uh, great moments of um, stupidly agreeing to do things that then when they actually come around turn out to be quite a stretch. Yeah. So when I signed up to go and do the Canberra Writers Festival and Melbourne Writers Festival, I thought it was going to be a pretty quiet month. But actually, (laughs) of course, it was just like this – shocking, shocking trail of destruction. (laughs) So I found myself um, flying into Canberra and I landed and and got a reminder from Kathy Lett with whom I agreed to do a session called um, Badass – Badass women from Australian history, like forgotten women who should have statues built to them. Yeah. Anyway, I should have really agreed to do something on not forgotten women of Australian history because that's so much easier to Google. (laughs) And I was like, shit, I meant to look up. I meant to think of some undiscovered women and now I've run out of time and I can't think of anything. But see, because they're undiscovered, you can make it up. Meg Peterson. Yes, uh, totally fictitious actually. (laughs) But what I did that was actually really smart in this moment of panic is that I just asked for some help for from some really great women who um, have spent a lot of time um, considering this very question. So, and I'm I'm so thrilled that I thought to do this because I was actually having a breathing panic attack situation because I couldn't I didn't have any time. Um, so I wrote to Kirsten Ferguson, who's um, uh, just published a book with um, Catherine Fox called. Um, Womankind. It's about women helping each other. But she's also got a really strong interest in history and she also um, started that website called Celebrating Women where you just um, where she profiles two women a day who are just awesome at their jobs and who people don't, you know, mm-hmm. make enough of a big deal of. So she sent through a bunch of um, a bunch of ideas which were really good. Um, that book is um, looks fantastic actually, um, Womankind. And Catherine Fox is also one of my favourite writers on gender issues in Australia. And um, apparently – Chat ten is all all the way through it. I think they interviewed you. Yeah, they did actually. Yeah. Or they emailed me, and I sent some things through. I can't remember. Yeah, but they use chat ten actually. The um, 
Facebook group as an example of women helping oh, great. other women. Like, oh, awesome. Yeah. Um, so it sounds like an awesome book. Um, and the other person that I contacted was Claire Wright, who, of course, wrote that great book, The Forgotten Rebels of Eureka, where she just retells the Eureka story, only with all the women put back into the story. Right. It's a completely enthralling book. And she's um, written a, just written a new book called You Daughters of Freedom, um, which looks at these early suffragettes in Australia and the incredible things that they did. Like. Oh. There's one woman in particular called Zelda DePrano who died actually just really recently, but she was um, uh, worked for a union in the um, late 60s and she um, the union was part of an equal pay case, which was defeated. And so she uh, chained herself to the um, Commonwealth building where the arbitration court was and then just uh, refused to move. And um, she got sacked from her job for being um, a troublemaker. Oh. But she did. She went on to this life of activism, including she used to do things like, because women still weren't allowed to drink in pubs, so she'd organise pub crawls with all of her friends. Oh. <laughs> and she would only ever pay 75% of the tram fare on the tram because her <laughs> argument was that women only get paid 75% of what men do, so <laughs> I'm only paying 75% of the fare. She oh was a God. badass lady. Wow. Yeah. She sounds awesome. Yeah, but this book will be brilliant, I think. It's out really shortly, if not if not. I think Already. actually I just saw an advanced copy on my desk earlier today when oh, I came did you? in. Yeah. Um, speaking of which, there was um, an advanced copy of Simple by, which is Yotamotolenghi's new book, which I've not had <laughs> really? a chance. Yeah. Which I like him. I've not had a chance. Yeah, exactly. I've not had a chance to flick through it. But when I saw the title, I, and and I quickly looked at the back, and it's like you know just simple recipes, fewer than ten ingredients, blah blah blah. I thought, man, that, he must have been grinding his teeth to do that because <laughs> the thing that sticks with me the most from his recipes in Jerusalem is how massively prescriptive he is about how he wants you to do things. He and loves the detail, doesn't he? Yeah. So I think just, for him to write a book called Simple, man, it must have really How taken. funny. Like, what if, I, I would have thought his definition of simple would be like fewer than 50 ingredients. <laughs> That's right. Or losing the detail like at 23 minutes and 15 seconds into the cooking, quickly remove the lid, place a doubly folded over tea towel on top of it, return the lid and step away for eight minutes and one second. <laughs> I just think those, you know, those spice cakes that he's got in. Oh Jerusalem, yeah, which are just oh, oh my god, they're the best. greatest. They're the yeah. greatest cookie ever. Unbelievable like, those spice cookies, got, those domey, yeah. fluffy. Oh. And you have to roll the mixture into domes, and you have to you know, to weigh them out. They're supposed to be fifty grams oh, each, just, and then you chill yeah. them, and then you cook them, and you're like, fuck off, you're not a <laughs> And then you eat them, and you're like, oh, okay, this is why. <laughs> yeah. um, I make those with instead of currants, I make them with um, sour cherries and. Dark yum. chocolate and then some orange zest as well. Oh, oh yeah, absolutely are, delicious. Yeah, they are. Hey, also you have seen Hedy McKinnon's <gasps> new cookbook, which I, I have Hedy not. McKinnon. Oh. I Hedy McKinnon. What's the new book better. called? The new book is called Family. Right. So, right. So she lives in Brooklyn now, um, and she wrote her second book there, Neighborhood. And, yeah, yeah, and now she's written Family, which is she says that like this is a book that is full of things that she will cook for her kids and that her kids like. Uh-huh. So there's some good observations in there about how you make um, make things more friendly for kids. And anyway, there's there's like a ton of really good stuff in there, including this, the thing that really caught my eye was this corn and um, vermicelli egg drop soup. Oh, my God. Oh. It's pretty much, yeah, it's right up my sounds, alley. That sounds one. good. Yeah, I'm dying um, to get my hands on that. But she is um, – just the loveliest person, which is 
such a, a relief because I really, from her writing, thought you just sound like a really nice person. Well, and also the and premise she... of the business and then the books, which was, you know, making this sort of one big salad a day, which she then personally delivered around to I customers. I thought that sounds like such a nice sort of friendly premise. That, yeah, you know, and I, it was really interesting because I'd sort of dimly thought that she had sort of like a cafe. She was just cooking them these salads in her kitchen mm. and then she would deliver them on a bike, you know. And I'm like, well, how did you manage the demand of like what time of day did you – was it all at boys at lunchtime? And she just said, well, they just got delivered when they got delivered. Like sometimes oh, I would take them to people with, like in the morning, sometimes it would be like 3 p.m. and would oh. be like, the, the salad's coming when it's coming, all right? <laughs> and because they were so good, everyone's like, yeah, fine, whatever. <laughs> and I said, look, did you ever – because she was – her place was in Surrey Hills. I'm like, did you ever get angry calls from sort of jerks in city office buildings saying, get me that roasted cauliflower stat, go a little faster? She's like, yeah, some people just, I'm like, like, I've run out. I'm not, you know, I'm booked up. And she said that people were constantly saying to her, well, hire someone, just, you know, grow, get some staff, hire a person to do the bike, the, the cycling. And she's like, no, because the whole idea of it was that I wanted to be the person who delivers it and has a little chat to the person and I want the person who lies awake at night thinking about what tomorrow's salad is going to be to be the same person that makes the salad to be the same person that delivers the salad. I love her. She's bonkers. <laughs> She's totally bonkers. I'm really looking forward um, to seeing that book. It's good. Hey, before I we... told her that you'd cooked your way through community. Yeah. And your first instinct when I gave you the cookbook was like, what's all this lentil shit, Crab? <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And, um, totally. And that you'd cooked your way through it. She was very impressed. I, I still don't love the lentil ones. I'm, I'm going to be honest, but um, I actually the other week no, I went. I'm making I hadn't you. got the whole way to the end, and so then I just I started cooking from the back oh, okay, backwards right. to try to get to the end recipes. Made a beautiful gado gado, which was just oh, yeah, that's, yum. That's a good recipe. Mm. Hey, before we run out of time, can I um, really tell you about something? Just because we were talking yeah. about the writers' festivals before. Yeah. Richard Flanagan wrote this. I thought incredibly interesting and well written piece for the Guardian. Now I haven't read that yet, but um, I've been meaning to for. Weeks. You, you really should. I, I read it once, and I've thought about it so much. I went back and read it again. It's really stayed in my mind. It was about. It was prompted by. Melbourne Writers Festival and Brisbane Writers Festival saying they weren't going to have Bob Carr or Jermaine Greer yep. on their programs. And there were various reasons given. But in Flanagan's essay, he basically says it's because they're promoting ideas that aren't sort of currently PC or are considered mm. too controversial. And he has a big go at writers' festivals and he uses that example of Lionel Shriver at the Brisbane yep. Writers Festival a few years yep. ago and also the Juno Diaz thing that happened at Sydney Writers Festival this year. Um to say, hang on, writers are meant to rub people up the wrong way and yeah. to, um, you know, provoke uh, or to, to sort of poke a finger in the eye of conventional thinking and to yeah. force people to think about things differently. And so if we can't, you know, have these sorts of things at Writers' Festival, where can we have them? He also made the point that we're not talking about idiots like you know, Andrew Bolt or Anne Coulter who aren't really, you know, deep thinkers or great writers or, or profound intellectuals. We are talking about people like Jermaine Greer who have had a lifetime of um, experience who are considered, you know, to be great thinkers um, and have made a significant contribution. So I just thought it was a really interesting point um, and definitely worth thinking about. And then coincidentally, sort of a week later, I read Jermaine Greer, the work that's been really controversial oh, called On, on rape. rape. Oh, you've read that. Okay, yeah. I haven't. Um, and I interviewed her for 7.30. Now, 
I don't think it's the best work. Um, but it did do, and I was reading it in having read the Flanagan thing, I thought, well, you know what, it is actually forcing me to think about these mm. questions in different kinds of ways. And she would have sentences where she'd say something like, in my view, which would be a complete and almost, you know, well, not even almost, a complete and offensive overreach, in mm. my view, where she would say um, a violent rape by a stranger is less corrosive than neglect and indifference in a long-term relationship, which I sort of find find really yeah. just yeah. hard to because like in my view the former fundamentally undermines your sense of security and yeah. and your contract that you should be safe walking around and stuff like that but nonetheless it made me sit there and think about it mm. for quite a while to think well and then it also made me think a lot about relationships that involve neglect and indifference and the effect of that on people and so I thought well that essay actually did do what it was meant to do. She also explored the idea of consent. So if you're sort of in a long-term relationship and you have sex with your husband because he sort of wears you down or you feel obligated, is giving in consent yeah. or not? Yeah. Um, anyway, it was. I found all of those questions really, really interesting and that she had fulfilled the brief as Flanagan said it should be, which is to lay things out in a way that really makes you think about them. Now, at the end of it, I certainly didn't agree with a lot of the argument she yeah. was making, but it it made me think about it. Yeah. I think the the story about – I think those cases of Carr and Greer both being excluded from the Brisbane Writers' Festival, I could, they, they're different propositions and one of them I find more worrisome than the other. Um, with Greer, I think what happened was that I think she'd been booked for a side event, not by the festival, yeah. but, with, but by a bookshop, I think, who then decided, you know, and this is one of the really interesting things now, I think, about bookshops who are obliged to do events to keep afloat mm. and to build communities in, around their bookshops. And I'm a great fan of that. I think it's a wonderful thing. There are so many great independent bookshops in Australia that do an incredible job of building a community and holding people's interest and providing all of this great um, stuff for people to do and think about. But they decided, I think, that they just couldn't wear the heat of the social media response and the complaints and people, um, you know, withdrawing their custom because of the message that Greer was peddling, right? Mm. Now, that's a fascinating thing because that is um, – it's about freedom of speech but it's also about a business and a group of people – paying for the freedom of speech with their own um, – with getting blasted and being in the front line mm. of what mm. we know is a massively, you know, motivated social media campaign when it springs yeah. up around these things. And I just think I do have sympathy for the bookshop um, and I, I do have a bit of sympathy for the festival because they, they're, they're in the position where they didn't really – seek to have Greer at the festival, but then they were kind of when this bookshop cancelled her event, she's then kind of, you know. But is that social media another... thing, is that not a form of bullying to be, like the thing with Lionel yeah, Shriver, is. like is that not a form of bullying, yeah. what happened to Lionel Shriver? Yeah, I think I think that um, any howling pack that, that forms um, can be described in that way in a lot of these circumstances. Um but the tricky thing is, you know, um, you have to, as a business, you have to pick a lane, right? Like you have to decide what yeah. your core business and identity is. And um, because identity and authenticity is so important, you have mm. to choose really carefully. Mm. Um, 
on a on a broad level, I do not understand why um, a writers' festival wouldn't, and I think it's probably the job of the writers' festival, not the individual bookshop, to engage with an idea like what. Um, J- Jermaine Greer is is writing about here, you know. Um, you I think t- it's bizarre that you wouldn't have a space in your program um, for it. Um, the other instance, which is um, about Bob Carr, seemed to be more like more about the sponsorship. Well, what's, just, what's his book about? I don't even know what the book's about. Um, a memoir, is it? Another memoir? Yeah, I think it is. God, yeah. I don't even know. Um, more Bob. I think it's more Bob, but but the 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 reservation about him seemed to be more about his message about China, right? And um, that it was sort of annoying or threatening some sponsors of the festival. Now that I, right. if that's true, and I don't know if it is, that seemed to be what was being reported. Then that seems um, like a really sinister thing too. I, I just found that really. Worrisome. Mm. Um, Go and have a look at this. Anyway, these things are always always complicated, and I bet there's more to the story. There often is. Um, The other thing I liked about the Flanagan piece was that I thought, man, there's nobody who's more of a darling than the writers' festivals than Richard Flanagan, and so I thought, you know, that's quite powerful coming from somebody like that, like somebody of the left um, because you can't just dismiss it as, oh, he's some right-winger having a go at writers' festivals. It's one of their own basically saying. It's weird, isn't it, that like how is it that freedom of speech as a sort of as a rallying cry has sort of somehow gone over to become the property of the right. Yeah, I know. It should be the property of everyone. Yeah, but it used to be a kind of a left-wing concept and now it seems to be quite a, you know. Well, people tend to wheel it out whenever it backs whatever their argument is. It's one of those adorable things about human nature. Exactly. Anyway, I don't believe in your freedom of speech. I I exist to shut you down. Don't believe in yours either and that's why I'm about to stop this recording. Goodbye.